Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. Oh, yes. That's you inspired me, Jamil. <laughs> uh, Bring yes. back the oldies but goodies. <laughs> you know, you, you find a winner, sometimes you just got to stick with it. You know, That's true. You can't, That's you, true. Can't, you can't new Coke that your, your introduction here. You're right. You You're right. That's what I mean. You know, Got to go with the classic, yeah. Right, right. People want the classic. They enjoy the classic. They, uh, they're, they're fans of, uh, you know, the history, the incredible history that we have, we have built here mm-hmm. over the past 16, 15. 17 years, something like that. I don't know. Something like that, yeah. It's been a while. I, who knows? I can't even remember back to those days. Yeah, I've, I don't, yeah, I don't remember what year that was started. It was, it was after meeting Justin in in uh, Florida, and so it'd been like two, th- two, three years after Florida, which was, <laughs> damn, what year was that? God knows what that is. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Two thousand four, I, I think. Maybe I remember. I remember asking you, and I was just like, look, well, to come do a show with me. Yeah, we'll do a show. It'll be fun. Uh, yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, we just had Chris White on the last show. I remember when I met first met him. Oh, yeah. Which was the same time I think I met you, which was at MCAB at Berkeley. Right. 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember him and, uh, and uh, Dave from Y-East. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Dave Hodgson, yeah. He was there too. And I remember <clears throat> you know asking about, you know, certain yeast. I think I was looking for a yeast that would give me, you know, the Eyinger uh character. And um I was asking them both about, you know, various lager yeasts and and Logson's just like, yeah, try this one, try that one. He's like, yeah, those are those are you know pretty close or you know one of them's the mm-hmm. same. And uh, but Chris was he was like, well, <laughs> I can't really tell you that. <laughs> I, I can't really tell you where the yeast come from. I'm like, well, which one's similar? You know. So uh, I remember, I remember that he was very, uh, very cautious about uh, declaring a yeast came from somewhere. You yeah. Uh, so I thought that was uh, it's just stuck with me all these years. <laughs> That's cool. You know what else is stuck with me like an STD. There you go. Our good Our, friend, John Blickman. That's right. <laughs> he is stuck by us through thick and thin, hasn't he? Like a horrible case of herpes. He is, he's in there, man. He's, he's <laughs> not, it's just not like a surface thing, man. He's in your body. He He'll flare up from up. time to time. Yeah, every once in a while he shows up. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, well, see, <laughs> there's, here's where the analogy breaks down. Uh, you know, because he makes things more wonderful when he does show up. That's true. Yes. He isn't painful, itchy, disgusting. <laughs> he's, he's he's wonderful, funny, smart, generous guy. That's and right. uh, we love seeing him and we love joking with him. He uh, is a brilliant engineering mind and has created some of the most innovative products for brewing uh, known to mankind. So you want to check it out, BlickmanEngineering.com. And uh, when we finally get back to having uh, conferences and stuff, and when he's there, go check that out too, because he's usually brings some really new, neat stuff with him. 
and it's always worth checking out. And they usually have some giveaways and freebies and stuff. So check it out. Uh, Wonderful people there at Blickman Engineering, wonderful equipment. Anything from, uh, you know, your more um, uh, basic brewing equipment, you know, solidly built to, you know, uh, the, the, the turnkey pro equipment. They got it all. So check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, he's paying for the show, so you don't have to. There's, there's your reason why <laughs> you should check it out. All right. Uh, today, we are uh, doing Q&A, live doing, Q&A. Yep. We're going to answer your questions. If you've got questions, you can just type them there in the comments section of the uh, of the live on Facebook feed, and uh, the lovely uh, Bevo will uh, capture your questions and uh, pass them on along to us. Uh, let's see. Uh, start off with this one. Rich, he says, uh, beat my juice in my brew. No, no, no. Beet juice in my brew. Oh, beet juice. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, woo. That seemed a little weird. Uh, hello, Malty and the Knowledge. I guess we have <laughs> new nicknames. Nice. I don't know. I'm kind of liking yours better than mine. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Uh, I love everything from the Brewing Network, especially Brew Strong. Hey, uh, I have learned more than, <laughs> more than I could have ever imagined. I truly value your opinions. Okay, fawning done. I brewed a red ale that my wife really likes, a southern tier copy of Battle in Four Dimensions, uh, as much as I could. On the bottle, it states, with a splash of beet juice. My question is how to best implement the beet juice and the type. I left, left it out last time. The only ones I could find locally were all lacto-fermented. I thought if I boiled it, the bugs would die, but ferment out. Uh, if it's added during the ferment, it might sour my beer, and the juice always contains sugar, liquid, dried, and crystallized. So bottle bombs were on my mind if I added during bottling. My local health store I found that they could press just the beets. But again, that's what's the best way to implement. One cup has 19 grams of sugar. Any advice at all will help, but as I have just started uh, listening a few months ago and uh, even listening like 18 hours a day, I'm still pretty far behind. <laughs> if you guys have the time, an email would be helpful, although I'd love to hear it on air too. <laughs> Thanks, Pope, and his deftness. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know what you are so deft at. I don't know, but uh must be the must be the witty quips. Yeah. Must be it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh I don't know if Rich is playing with a full deck at this point. Um let's see. He wants to use fresh beet juice or beet juice. I you know, I'm I'm imagining Southern Tears kind of throwing in some beet juice mainly for color. Uh, yeah. Beet juice is, uh, beets are a common uh, food coloring uh, that's yeah. used um, just to give things a nice red uh, color. So uh, since it's a red ale, maybe they weren't getting the red they were looking for. And so they threw in the beet juice. I would look at um, a couple of possibilities. One okay. might be uh, just using the juice from canned beets. There you go. Uh, I, it is uh, sanitary. Uh, yep. It is. Uh, I don't know how much sugar is in it. You you could probably use it as a priming sugar. Yeah. If you are if you're bottling and you're using a priming sugar. Um, if not, I think you could add it towards the end of fermentation. And I think uh, most of the sugars that are in fruits, vegetables, stuff like that, it ferments out super easy. It takes just uh, a moment, you know, <laughs> over overnight, it pretty much is gone. And uh, I don't think it will mess with your ABV much. It might bring the ABV down a little bit, um, you know, depending on what type of beer it was. But, uh, you know, if you're not putting in a gallons of it, I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. So I think you could just, you could just pour in some and uh, yeah, you could use the fresh beets. You could use whatever. The problem with the fresh beets is even somebody presses it, it's going to be, uh, there's going to be bacteria in it. 
and uh, wild yeast. So uh, the only way you, I think you can do it is to get something that's kind of packed packaged. Um, if they have a beet juice that doesn't have like added sugar and things like that, um, that would be the way to go. But like I said, uh, a can of beets, there's a lot of liquid in there usually. And, um, well, you uh, could puree them too and use it just like any other fruit towards the end of fermentation. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I don't think they're, they're looking for a huge amount of, uh, Sugar, sugar, and Probably flavor, just, and color. I, I yeah. think I'm just looking for the color, the color right. boost. So, uh, uh, yeah, there that would you be go. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Um, I've not used. Uh, I don't think I've used beet juice in beets in a in a beer. I might have. Hmm. Nothing's coming to mind at this point. Have you ever used beets? No. I mean, I grew up in Michigan where we made sugar locally from sugar beets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that it stank when they processed them. So it's, <laughs> it's one of those things I've just never wanted to pursue. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Another question from uh, Zach. He says uh, about fading maltiness. He says, hello, big fan of your show. Just want to ask, ask a quick question. Every lager I've brewed, all German styles, has had a great malty flavor on the first sip. Everything that I was looking for in that beer. Unfortunately, subsequent, subsequent sips yield a weird crispness that can only be described as a vague sweetness and hop bitterness with no real hop or malt character. Is this a flaw in my beer, lacking enough malty intensity, or my palate? For what it's worth, it seems like the malt flavors come forward when some of the carbonation escapes. Beer doesn't seem overcarved. Uh, I've changed my yeast strains, uh, tried decoction mashing. At least I think that's it. Decoration okay. matching. So it, yeah, it, it, spell, 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 uh, spell checking. Autocorrect. Uh, yeah. Autocorrect. Yeah. Uh, low dough brewing all to no avail. What are your thoughts? Hmm. He's so he, it's a, it's a hmm. loss in maltiness from the first sip to the last. Right. First sip as, a, as opposed to, to, to the second. Yeah. Yeah. First, the second. So, but it's not, it's not a matter of the, the beer aging in the keg or, you know, this beginning right. of the batch, the end of the batch, it's it's as he's drinking it. Right. Which, I mean, you would have to think that it's palate related. Yeah. But. Palate fatigue, maybe. Uh, but, but it could be, you know, there's something there in the beer that is, you know, on the first sip is fine and then it's kind of uh you've got to be binding with uh receptors in the tongue and then uh Mm -hmm. and that's why it's changing uh yeah so what would that be i mean you would think well okay any any flavor that you get um i I don't know if this is really true because i'm sure there's exceptions to it but any flavor that you intake in your mouth pretty soon you know sensory wise you become kind of numb to that and so it seems less the more you 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 go and if you were to you know uh, it's like that first piece of pizza tastes fabulous and then you know by the time you finish the entire pizza you know it's you're not noticing it as much you're just hammering it in because you're you're a disgusting fat pig (laughs) um but uh you know if you were to if you have another pizza the next day, it's every bit as wonderful again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your palate gets, gets a chance to recover. Uh, I would uh, try a couple of things. I would, uh, you know, maybe try some water in between, maybe a cracker or something like that. You know, treat it as kind of like a beer judging thing. Also, you know, send it into a beer competition and see what kind of feedback you get on it. Um, the fact that he's saying that the malt flavors come forward when some of the carbonation escapes um 
then you know perhaps it is a little too much carbonation. He says it isn't too much, but uh, that might be. Uh, It might be a possibility that uh, he is, you know, uh, looking more for malt sweetness uh, versus actual malt character. Yeah. Um, So when he's talking about maltiness, uh, a lot of times people talk about maltiness as a sweetness of the beer. Uh, And if, uh, you know, you have something sweet and then after a while, very quickly, it doesn't seem sweet anymore. Right. Um, and that's generally the first to the, uh, to the next. Um, this is a weird crispness that can only be described as a vague sweetness and hot bitterness. No real hop or malt character. See, that I would think would be maybe, you know, Carbonation, carbonation, or water related, or you know, acids related. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, he, he doesn't say, but I wonder if he's eating, you know, eating things with him when he's drinking the beer, because mm-hmm. that could, you know, affect definitely. Right, right. Palate. Um, but you know, if moving on to possible contamination, mm-hmm. um, you know, a little bit of lacto- lactic acid um, may trigger some of those uh, flavor perceptions. Um, diastaticus certainly pulls maltiness out of a beer mm-hmm. if it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it'd be interesting to, to hear back from him, uh, get some more details, uh, you know, batch differences, time differences, anything you notices like that as well. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, uh, Zach, uh, you know, let us know, and, and you know, uh, hand that beer to a few other people and see what their what their yeah. take on yeah. it is. Uh, another another thing you might try is is buy some uh, classic uh, German beers uh, that are in good shape and drink them side by side and see if you see the same thing happen or it's different with your beer. Um, so that'll tell you, you know, palate wise, um, you know. Maybe your palate's just fine, and you know there would be something with the beer. And then we got to do a lot more investigation and figuring it out. Yeah. All right. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we got more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature march pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're taking uh, taking your questions today. If you've got uh, any questions while you're listening live, type them in the uh, comment section of the video and uh, lovely Miss Bevo will uh, gather those up and pass them along to us. Any questions you have about Bruin, uh, feel free. Okay. Uh, Steve, he has a comment on uh, our older shows. Ah. Uh, The oldie but goodies. Right. You know, people, they listen to these shows and then they throw it back in our faces. You know, maybe not in your face, but throw it back in my face. You know, oh my God, you said this, you did that. What were you thinking? I wasn't thinking. I was probably drinking and I wasn't thinking. That's just the way it is. 
Uh, Steve says, hi, legends. People are coming up with some nice yeah. uh, greetings here. That's right. Yeah. They're, 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 uh, they're leaning in hard. Uh, I've just been listening to an old Q&A show from 2011. Oh, my God. I didn't even know we were doing shows in 2011. <laughs> I guess we were. That's yeah, only nine, yeah. nine years ago. Where someone asked about using an incandescent light bulb for temperature control. Oh, yeah. They were worried about the uh, light generated and whether they could cover the bulb. I think a great alternative and safe option is to go to a reptile shop uh, where they sell ceramic heat lamps, which are a ceramic block on a light bulb spigot that plugs into a standard light bulb socket. They let off a lot of heat safely and no light whatsoever. He gives a... uh, uh, Australian uh, URL for a reptile, reptile one ceramic heat lamp. So I think okay. you just Google or Bing your reptile one ceramic heat lamp, and uh, Amazon will have it to you uh, before the show is over. Uh, thanks so much for your show. It's been uh, so much fun listening and learning. I don't know what I'll do once I've caught up on the remaining eight years <laughs> worth of back episodes, not be able to binge new content. Uh, take care, cobbers. <laughs> cobbers. I don't know. Uh, nice. Well, the, the cobber is, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, must right. be an Australian thing. Perhaps he didn't mention if he was in Australia. I just surmised. Hmm. Well, light light on fermentation isn't a huge deal unless it's ultraviolet light. Mm-hmm. And then you're maybe looking at some hop skunking. Um, incandescent, I'm not sure what proportion of incandescent light tends to be fluorescent. Uh, I would think it's or, a small. Have ultraviolet, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 there is some, but uh, not nearly as bad as, you know, like a fluorescent light, I guess. Yeah. When I was writing how to brew and I was saying, you know, take, keep your fermenter out of the light, I meant keep it out of direct sunlight so mm-hmm. that it didn't heat up, you know, and exceed your fermentation temperature. Um, that kind of thing. That's why I was, you know, cautious. Oh, there's a lot of UV light in, in sunlight. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Too. So, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a matter of keeping your fermenter in the dark. It's simply don't throw it in the, in the full sun and mm-hmm. get it hot and skunked. Right. Well, and I like Steve's, uh, uh, you know, yeah, uh, suggestion yeah, because uh, again, probably might be safer than a light bulb. You know, a little incandescent light bulb, uh, you know, it's easy to break. Uh, yeah, you know, there's just yeah. a lot of other things. Uh, it doesn't do well in human locations, uh, yeah. things like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah they don't- uh, reptile heater is a good idea. I, I was a big fan of the, uh, uh, the heat wrap, you know, the stuff oh, they yeah. use inside uh, modern uh, – heating pads that yep. plastic sheet always like that because you can just put that right on the fermenter yep get uh, get better uh, conduction that way yeah i off, i used to use a, a fermentation chamber where i had uh an air you conditioner get naked and float in <laughs> in, a, in a solution in the dark next to your fermenter it's an idea. Is that, that's is an that idea. your fermentation chamber? Is that what? <laughs> yeah. That's what I imagine it would be like. Yeah. No, that's that's the that's what they call that the man cave. Yeah. No, the fermentation chamber was an air conditioning unit, and then a small, um, you know, ceramic heater fan combination mm-hmm. plugged into a two two stage controller. Mm-hmm. So temperature goes too too high, the the air conditioner kicks on. Temperature goes too low, the heater would kick on and mm-hmm. circulate the air. So I could I could maintain the chamber in a very you know narrow temperature range that way, mm-hmm. and that worked real well. Yeah, I I, I used to um, <clears throat> at one point I made a uh, uh, I would ferment lagers and ales pretty much side by side. I would have the fridge running to uh-huh. hit the lager temperature needed, but then just a heat wrap on, on the uh, ale to oh, keep nice. it at ale temperature. And then I would insulate that. So it wasn't uh, dumping a ton of heat into the box, and, but uh, it would just keep it from getting too cold. 
and uh, worked amazingly well. I was surprised that I could do uh, two yeah. years side by side. So uh, that's that's another possibility too. And a lot of creative stuff for I think doing the managing heat and cooling. Right. Um, right. You know. Yeah. Speaking whatever, of managing yeah. heat, um, I've often asked the the quite guys, you know, how do oh. you how do they ferment, you know, at ninety five, hundred degrees Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and for these quite yeasts, and they often use a water bath and like an mm-hmm. aquarium heater in the water bath mm-hmm. um, to to maintain those temperatures, and that that's a good a good solution. Sure, uh, I mean, I'm not sure you need to ferment really high, but uh, some of them actually to. do better um, at warm, you know, ninety-five degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it's it's a much more expressive, I guess, or fuller beer character at mm-hmm. ninety-five, say than sixty-five or seventy-five. Um, but uh, anyway, that's that's one one question that had come up. There you go. Uh, all right. Uh, Eric was asking about zinc. He had some practical questions about zinc. He says, Jamel, I currently use Y-East beer nutrient that I believe has some zinc, but the amount is not specified. I'm wanting to improve my beers and eliminate excess fan as a, a variable by knowing how much zinc I add. You have mentioned you use zinc monohydrate instead of heptahydrate, but I can only find monohydrate available as a feed fertilizer grade. For an all-malt wort, is zinc the only nutrient necessary? Does that apply to extract batches as well? What is your source, BSG lab supply uh, for the monohydrate? Uh, at what percent adjuncts should I consider adding back diammonium phosphate or something else? In that case, should I use DAP plus zinc calculated separately versus Y yeast nutrient, for example? Thanks for all the knowledge you and John provide. Okay, number of questions in there. Yeah, yeah. Let's start off with uh, the monohydrate versus heptahydrate. Okay, so one of the reasons that you'd use monohydrate versus heptahydrate is you need like uh, a fraction of it uh, because there's uh, seven uh, water seven. molecules in the, in the heptahydrate. And there's only one in the monohydrate. Uh, so you can use either. Either is fine. It's just... You know, you're buying more water when you buy the heptahydrate. For a commercial brewery, it was worth our time to track down a source of pharmaceutical grade uh, monohydrate. We had to buy like 100 kilo. <laughs> so we have a kind of a lifetime supply. I have been parsing it out to some of my brewing friends. Did I tell you the story of how I took a kilo of it to, um, to Sweden? No, you didn't. Yeah, so to, uh, to Don Magnus uh, and Magnus, I think. Uh, so I put in, I, I asked uh, my guys to, you know, get me a kilo. And they, I, they must have purposely, you know, taped it up with that brown tape you see, plastic tape you see on the, you know, the, on the shows. So, you know, looked like a kilo of cocaine. Not that I've seen a kilo of cocaine, cocaine in person, but I've seen on TV enough times right. to uh, in the say like, that's exactly what it looks like. And so I'm just like, Oh my God, what am I going to do with this thing? So I put it inside another Ziploc bag and I just threw it in my, my luggage. I'm like, Oh, well, what the heck? And then I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And so I typed up a note that said, <laughs> you know, to, to, to whom I may concern, this is, you know, zinc monohydrate. It's a, you know, a nutrient used in brewing beer. Uh, I'm visiting a friend that uh, brews a lot of beer and I'm bringing this to him as a gift. And, uh, you know, I just like, I hope it makes it. And so, so I put that <laughs> note in there and put it in my bag. Sure enough, uh, when I get to my destination, it had one of those little cards and it says your bag was opened and searched. <laughs> and uh, I could tell that they had, you know, taken it out and looked at it. And, uh, but uh, it got through, no problem. I was, was like, I'm, you know, once I agreed to bring it, I'm like, that was stupid. I'm going to end up in some back room <laughs> at the airport, pants yeah. around my ankles, explaining why I'm, I'm toting a kilo of white powder, uh, you know, internationally. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm like... 
I just got to declare what it is and hope, hope that it goes okay. Uh, anyways, uh, so yeah, we were able to get a pharmaceutical grade. Um, I don't know about using feed fertilizer grade. I mean, it is going into food. You know, they use, they feed it to cattle and stuff. So I guess that'd be okay. I mean, yeah. I, I, if, if I was home brewing and it was for me, I wouldn't care. That wouldn't, that wouldn't stop me in a right. at all. I'd be, I'd be, yeah, sounds good. Load me up. Um, but the, the heptahydrate you can get through, um, BSG, it's a, a Murphy's or it's a, what is it? I think it's Murphy's. It's a, yeah. Murphy's. It's a, a British or Irish uh, supplier that, that makes it, it's mm-hmm. kind of pricey. Um, but you know, on the homebrew scale, you're not using that much. Um, I think at, at, uh, at the size that we are, you know, we're doing, you know, 34 barrels of wort, whatever it's with monohydrate, it's like four grams or something like that. It's almost nothing (laughs) for that. So that hundred kilos, it's going to last us a long time. Uh, well, and the way to measure it out, uh, is, uh, you know, measure a larger quantity. Uh, you know, on a scale that you can accurately measure, get the best scale you can or use the best scale you can, borrow scale or something like that, measure out, you know, a larger quantity like, you know, 100 grams, put that in a liter of water, you know, shake it up, get it dissolved. And then you can do the math to say, well, okay, I need like five mils of, of the solution or two That's mils. That's a good idea. Yeah. You, know, you can pipette it into your, your batch because you got to be careful. You don't want to overdo it with zinc. Because uh, that can be just as bad. Um, so, John, for an all malt wort, is zinc the only nutrient necessary? Well, um, yes and no. Uh, um, yes, but you're talking about uh, you know yeast need, um, and if you're using fresh yeast from a yeast supplier, such as our good friend Chris White. White Labs, that's got all the zinc it needs for that one batch. Now, if you're, you know, cereal repitching and not buying fresh yeast each time, that's when you need to add zinc. And that's what you all do there at Heretic is you repitch and therefore you add zinc. Um, Home brewing scale, if you're not repitching, you really don't need to add zinc. Um, I'll, I'll say on, you know, when, when we're doing something that is a bigger beer, something where like 1080, yeah. um, you know, a little extra zinc will help with some of those uh, to keep them from uh, becoming really slow. Okay. So yeah, I've, always, I've always, always thought that, uh, you know, a little bit there seems to help. It, it should only be part of the process and utilized in the budding, but um, mm-hmm. it, it certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah. Even on that first batch, certainly okay. doesn't hurt. Um, one, one comment he made that caught my ear was he said um, zinc is a replacement for fan or to make up for fan. Uh, no. Think. Okay. No. Um, uh, he was talking about, uh, let's see, uh, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> uh, he wants to eliminate excess fan as a variable. So if he's got a yeast nutrient that has fan and um, – zinc in it and then you know he's adding that you're adding extra fan which you oh, don't I necessarily see. want to do because right. excess fan can cause a hot ferment and then yeah. you know it's sometimes with the yeast nutrient if it looks like the ferment's raging uh you feel like it was a better nutrient uh, mm-hmm. but uh you got to be you got to be careful to which fan and you know, an all malt wort should have enough fan in it. Should have, Gen- yes. Generally does. It's only when you start using non-grain-based uh, 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 adjuncts and you start thinning things out with like a lot of sugar that you you run into that issue. So right. all malt wort, adding some zinc is is definitely the uh, the way to go. Uh, zinc, some oxygen, and you should be good. Um, let's see. Does that apply to extract batches as well? Yeah, um, I would think yeah, so. Yeah, so Mostly wort. Especially if it's a all malt uh, extract. If it's an extract that has like a bunch of sugar in it for some reason, I don't know. I'm assuming something like that exists. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, again, it, it depends on the yeast you're using, is why, mm-hmm. it, whether you really need zinc or not. 
-hmm. It's not so much the wort composition. If the wort composition has sufficient zinc in it, then you don't need it. Um, Well, it's a yeast. It's a yeast need, not a not a wort push. If I'm making sense there. Yeah, and there is zinc in uh, malt, malted barley, and uh, should be in the extract that you're using. That naturally occurs. The the problem is, it's where that that grain was grown because it yeah. takes it up from the soil, and if it's in a place where there's not much zinc, then you get a lower amount. And sometimes you know you get enough. They say there's just barely enough in in malt to carry the fermentation and for the yeast needs. Uh, but you know, that can, that can go down and that could be, that could be high or low. So again, that's why I, I'm always a, a fan of zinc. Uh, what is your source BSG lab supply? Uh, like I said, um, we were able to, you know, find a supplier. My lab guy was able to find a supplier. We were able to order, uh, somewhere on the East coast, I think a, uh, a large brick and then we cut it down we added some baby some baby laxative to it and uh you know put in little bags uh let's see now what percent adjunct should i consider adding back diammonium phosphate or something else um 30 percent i would say yeah yeah uh 30 percent certainly um you can do it you know 20 but you're generally good to about 20 or so um in that case should i use diammonium phosphate plus zinc calculated separately um i prefer that i hate it when somebody combines things for me and expects me to just use it that way yeah Um, you know uh, that's my preference but you know i'm an odd guy too so there you go uh, let's see here. Maybe we get one more in. Uh, Brian is asking, I'm coming late to the party and I wanted to get your take on adding cocoa nibs and jalapeno peppers to a brown ale. Grist is as follows. 80% British pale malt, uh, 5.4% of a crystal 80 and a crystal 40. Uh, Cara Roma, uh, 3% pale chocolate. I'm you a 23 of Kent Goldings. The plan is after fermentation, uh, rest the beer on the cocoa nibs for several days, question mark, and finish by adding pepper for a kit at the end. Kit or kit, kick maybe at the end. Kick, I think. Sure. K-I-T. So um, <laughs> what's your thoughts? Um, he was going to use, going to sit the beer, um, on, on the coconuts for several days. I yeah yeah. I mean, I would probably add them to the whirlpool myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you get better extraction that way. Um, right. Then you don't have to worry about any sort of contamination or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Get rid of the sludge factor in the fermenter. Right, right. The nibs. I mean, you can use cocoa powder too. Um, yeah. That's fine. Uh, that's what they actually, process nibs into. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I think cocoa powder is better than cocoa nibs. I mean, people tend to think, okay, less processed is better. But in the case of chocolate, um, the cocoa powder has been defatted. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about, you know, oil oils going uh, rancid and losing head retention. So, and even the, the woody bits that you get with the nibs, um, mm-hmm. they have kind of a, a woody flavor and kind of a tannic uh, character to them. Mm-hmm. Once you get rid of that, I mean, you know, making cocoa powder is the process that they are using, they use to make chocolate, you know. So it is, it's the step in making chocolate that, you know, makes chocolate taste so good and, and People want things to be chocolatey when they're adding cocoa nibs. So I just, I, I'm not that huge a fan of cocoa nibs either. Um, I think cocoa powder is great. Cocoa powder you find in the grocery store. Yeah, it's right there. Can, can of Hershey's, uh, it's got like a half gram of fat in the, the entire tin or something. It's, it's not much, uh, not much uh, fat and uh, yeah, tastes good. Yeah. Uh, 
let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the the pepper at the at the end. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, give it give it a shot. I mean, uh, you know, keep keep notes and uh, you know, keep uh, you know tweaking it until until you get uh, a perfect beer. Uh, let's see. One more break. We'll take another short break, and we'll come back. We'll have more of your questions right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We are doing uh, your questions live here on Facebook. Uh, if you do have questions and you're listening, feel free to just go to the comment section under that video and uh, type in uh, your questions, and the lovely Miss Bebo will pass those along. Uh, as she sees fit. Uh, uh, Paul writes, uh, uh, asking about sous vide. He says, hi guys, great show. Uh, you do uh, good work over there. I've learned a lot from y'all. Any chance you do a follow on show to brew in a bag, specifically a sous vide brew in a bag episode. I'm picking one up today. Seems like an economical alternative to an all in one system. Hey, thanks, Paul. He is uh, Air Force retired. Very nice. Yeah, thanks sous vide. Your service there, Paul. Yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, my friend of mine, Doug Piper, is uh, has been doing sous vide brew in a bag. Um, very how, con- does that, how does that work? I mean, uh, the brew in the bag is a mesh bag that you put all your grains in. You put right. all the water in, in your oil kettle. Uh, and then you add your water, and then how does the sous vide part fit, fit, fit in on that? Well, the sous vide is nice in that what it is, you know, it's essentially a heat stick with a uh, a fan or a, a propeller on the bottom, so mm-hmm. it circulates the water as it heats it. And mm-hmm. so you can do your usual brew in the bag, like on the stove in the kettle, but instead of turning the stove on from time to time to keep it warm, you just put you uh, get your your water up to strike temperature, mm-hmm. and then set your sous vide at the mash temperature. Mm-hmm. Insert the bag, start the sous vide, and now you've got you know circulating heat heating uh, to maintain that mash temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, the night the nice thing about brewing a bag is you know the bag is containing the vast majority of your grain bits mm-hmm. so they're not clogging the intake of the sous vide chop, chop it up in the sous vide yeah <laughs> and not you know not sticking and burning like some things can uh-huh. um, the sous vide heaters are fairly low density mm-hmm. um and uh, so you don't get a sticky mass on there or anything they, they work mm-hmm. quite quite well and so the whole purpose is really just to maintain mash temperature. Yeah. Actually, I suppose you could bring up, you could use it to heat your water too. You can. You, yes. you just put it in, uh, walk away, and it'll just go up to whatever you've set the water to. And then when you come back, uh, you drop in your grains and you just use that to keep maintain temperature for your hour or however long your, your, your mash rest is. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And and many of the the sous vide manufacturers have apps for your phone, mm-hmm. so you can you know set the temperature, monitor the temperature, have it you know beep you when it's at temp or when the chicken's ready. Yeah, when an hours pass and everything like that. Yeah, so yeah, it is a kind of a nifty way to do it. Because I sous vide steaks and stuff like that, but I have not uh, even considered using it for uh, for brewing. Yeah, of course, you know. Uh, I've got a different <laughs> brew plant than, than I was right. using before. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's interesting. That that seems like uh, well, and it's you know, it's really not that far. What's funny is you know uh, my friend Matt Thomas, right? Oh yeah. yeah. So uh, at his house, um, you know, he's got his automated. You know, he's been building. You know. Uh, brew temperature recirculation stuff for his brew kettle and you know he's electric fired uh oh yeah and uh and every once in a while he'll sous vide something in it for dinner oh yeah <laughs> in his, in his brewery uh and stuff he's like yeah might as well just sous vide, use it for sous vide 
So I don't know why I never, you know, made the leap the other direction. But uh, there yeah. you go. Push yeah. sous vide to turkey when you're for, for Thanksgiving. Sous vide to turkey for Thanksgiving. That, yeah. that takes a large uh, bag to, to fit a turkey. Yeah, I used a garbage bag. But, uh, <laughs> you know, put it right in the brew kettle, sous vide it right there. Yeah. Finished it under the broiler. Some of those garbage bags are not food grade, you know. Ah, <laughs> he's still alive. There, yeah. there, there are some some uh, some uh, uh, some chemicals that come off of those bags. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it would explain a lot about uh, uh, Push's uh, current mental state. I think uh, <laughs> seen his uh, his quarantine photos. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, when I, I started doing, uh, bacon wrapped pork tenderloins and oh. then I'll sous vide them first and mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, vacuum bag them and then sous vide them. And then, uh, so the bacon's right tight up against it and it all kind of forms its own spot. Then you take it out and you just roll it around on the grill, finish up the bacon. Oh, it turns out really nice. Super moist and tender. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll make Sounds one good. of those this, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Jeremy writes. Uh, he's got a hot break question. Hello, my Bruin brothers. Hello, I have a question re- regarding uh, bringing work to a boil and the hot break. I'm having a hard time managing the hot break with my setup, and I'm wondering if there is something I can change to help make this a less dramatic event every time I brew. I have a 10-gallon boil kettle with a 4,500-watt electronic heating element. Typically, my pre-boil volume is in the 7.4-gallon range to get 5 gallons in the fermenter. 18% boil off plus a... uh, uh, minus a gallon of for troop, etc. When I approach the hot break, I'm usually manipulating the power to my burner very closely to try to allow foam to build but keep it from boiling over. It usually takes five to ten minutes of turning the power down when it is about to boil over and then turning back up when the foam settles down. After this teeter-totter tottering of heating, it doesn't seem like I get a true hot break to happen. I'm curious if there is a different approach, power management, additives, etc., that can help me be more successful with this critical portion of the boil. Please note my boil kettle is an anvil, so I'm confident that it is not the problem. Love the show. Keep up the great work, Jeremy. Okay, well, I th- the hot break is going to happen, whether it whether it looks dramatic in terms of the amount of foam generated or not. Uh, it's it's a it's a coagulation thing that occurs time and temperature. So if you're boiling and you're not at, you know, 16,000 feet, it should be happening pretty, pretty thoroughly. Well, and, and, and motion also will add yeah. to that uh, coagulation effect. And, and, you know, I think it's an interesting question though. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, because there's times, you know, uh, you know, you, when you boil vigorously, and you can get those, uh, you know, large chunks of, of break material. Mm-hmm. Um, or I wonder if, you know, doing this initial simmering when a lot of the break is going to occur, you know, maybe you're getting smaller bubbles. Maybe you're getting finer chunks of break material. So maybe it looks less impressive. I'm not really sure, yeah. but maybe it looks less impressive because they're, they're you're forming smaller chunks versus – uh, more substantial looking chips. Yeah. If if he's trying to kind of maintain that same vigorous boil uh, and not worry about a boil over, then putting something like a strainer uh, over the top would help, you know, collapse the foam as it tries to boil out. Um, that could prevent boil over for you. And you could touch it with a, you know, something uh, the metal spatula or you know yeah. uh, you know a, a coil spring type of uh, thing uh, you just touch that to the top and that that might uh, be just enough to break it up and then that might be easier than turning the temperature up and down yeah 
spraying it with awesome. you know and water. then there's the yeah spraying with water that's what most craft brewers do they just stand mm-hmm. there by the the kettle with the hose or they get their kettle size correctly and then they don't have to deal with it right there you go right um and, you know, I see a lot of uh, difference in break material based off of uh, what kind of malt I'm using. Yeah. Certain I, malts will really generate huge, you know, chunky, you know, uh, uh, curd, you know, cheese curd looking, tofu looking stuff. Right. Um, so that might be part of it. I, I think, you know, like John's saying, I wouldn't worry too much. I, I think... You do need some mechanical turnover in the, of the liquid. As long as you're getting that and it's boiling, if you're getting some bubbles and vaporization, it doesn't have to be a wild, rough boil. It right. can be more what people would think is a simmer. Um, you know, as long as it's actually boiling and you're seeing little bubbles breaking on the surface and you're getting uh, mechanical turning of the, uh, you know, the motion of the liquid moving around in the kettle, uh, which causes those little proteins to bump together at the, the heat and coagulate and clump. And then, you know, that's, you're, you're getting the break material. Um, and yeah, as long as you're, you're getting clear wort at the end, I wouldn't worry too much. If you're not getting clear wort, then, you know, maybe, maybe that is the problem. Yeah. Let us know. There you go. All right. One more short break. And uh, we'll have uh, we'll wrap up with uh, your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Doing a live Q&A show. Uh, let's see. Uh, Richard asks, both Y-East and Y-Labs have done away with the manufacturing date and replaced it with a use-by date. My calculator wants a manufacturing date. How do you calculate that and why did they do that? Um, I think that, I don't know. I, I, I thought that they always had a use-by date, or maybe, maybe, maybe they've changed over time. Um, I, I think know. you know, it's it's pretty transparent enough because um, the they will tell you what what their manufacturing date is based off of the the use-by date. I think it's like six months or something. Yeah is generally what they use. It, it varies depending on what it is that's in the package. You know, they have a, a different uh, date on, uh, on uh, bacteria cultures, for example, than they do on the yeast cultures. So uh, I think it's, that's a much shorter date. I think it's maybe like four months or three months or something like that, whereas the yeast are six months. Right. So I, what I would do is just reach out to uh, – the yeast manufacturers and just say, Hey, what's, you know, what's the time between manufacturing and the best buy date or used by date. And they, they should tell you, or it might be on their website in the fact or something. Um, and that way you can, you can uh, put it in your calculator. Why did they do that? I think in the case of yeast, in the case of most, um, uh, you know, places, I think, most people are not that savvy about, you know, what they should be looking for time-wise. You know, a lot of people aren't that heavy into brewing like all the rest of us. Yeah. And that might... Well, state regulations may be part of the reason as well. Um, a lot of food Internationally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You use by or best by dates are usually what's mm-hmm. mandated as far as food safety. And it could be to market yeast in particular states. They're looking for that kind of declaration. I, I, I think they, they need it internationally, but I don't think they need it in the U.S. Um, I mean, it might be. Uh, I don't know that state by state they have uh, a regulation on that because usually the FDA kind of covers that sort of thing. And I don't think this is an FDA-regulated thing. Okay. Um, 
don't know. I think I think you know beer ingredient. I think it's a, a generally recognized as safe, huh? Yes, absolutely. Yeast, yeast should be. Although what we learned in our previous show was right. well, there's a lot of deadly yeasts out there. So that's right. Go figure. Uh, all right, we got. Uh, we'll wrap up with one from uh, John. He's got a polygal question, which is, uh, oh. you know, not the party gal, but the polygal used in the one, uh, many grains in one wort yep. uh, that we came up with. Uh, good evening, brewers. After all, it's always five o'clock somewhere. Let's see. I want to try the polygal technique to make 11 gallons of a wee heavy. I have a question about brewing salts. Short version. How do I treat the mash water for the second batch? You really don't have to. Because it's your your mash water, your second batch is the uh, the work from the first batch. So it's already been treated. It should should pretty much be fine. I guess you could have a pH swing if you had some some work that was really a lot of roasted malt or really a lot of uh, pale malt. I've done. Uh, I did a porter mash. Uh, polyguile and mm-hmm. stepped it up three times and the pH did drop each time. Mm-hmm. Um, by the third one, I was down at 4.9. All right. So well, it's, it, yeah. it, it will drop, but it, you know, f- just for a one step partyguile, you know, mashing with the previous wort, um, I, I'd have to look into how to brew, but um, I think it's only like a 0.1 drop. Well, and uh, I think when we did uh, something with uh, more pale pale malts, we needed to add a little bit of uh, lactic a- or phosphoric acid to just you know get the maintain. pH back, you know, maintain the pH properly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you might you might need to do that. Um, and I, yeah, I guess it depends on you know your you don't you're not going to have to add uh, more salts because your salts are already there, but you may have to adjust pH with um, an acid addition. But what if you need to keep the the pH up? Should you start at a higher pH? Yeah, you could. You could. Well, if you're doing a dark beer, then, you know, certainly you could start like five, six. And so Mm -hmm. by the time you're done mashing, you're down at five, five, two or five, four. Yeah. Right. Um, You can start a little higher until allow for that but mm-hmm. um generally i would uh, you know, almost say you don't have to worry about it because the the ch- difference is not going to be that great True. Um, you're still within the guidelines the process is extremely for- forgiving and yeah. Um, yeah. unless you're you're way off on your ph i wouldn't worry about it i would just treat your 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 water for your first uh set of work um, how you would as if you were just making that individually and then just use your work after that. You shouldn't yeah. have a problem with that. So there you go. Enjoy your, your, uh, your polyguiling. Good way to make strong beers. <laughs> it, it is. It is a lot of fun. That's uh, something I'm so, so glad we were a part of. I wonder if there's uh, any, there must be some commercial breweries doing it besides us. Uh, yeah, I know St. Arnold's has done it. Oh, yeah? yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a lot of fun. All right. Uh, well, this was a nice, enjoyable way to spend the day, John. It was. Uh, Chris Ryan on the previous show. and always Good fast. to see him. Yeah. We could talk to him for hours and hours. Oh, yeah. Uh, always, we always find some interesting things to say. And, Good friend. Uh, and some great questions today. And, yeah. Uh, Thank you to our, our great sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com. Check them out. Uh, send uh, a nice email to John Blickman for me. Uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. He actually checks all those emails, and he has commented on the nice emails he's gotten from you guys. That's right. Uh, expressing your, your gratitude that he's paying for the show. And, you know, you got to keep doing it. If you want another 15 years out of us, uh, somebody's <laughs> got to pay for it. That's John Blickman. And check out our friends at Brew Chatter as well. Uh, good folks are up there in Reno, Sparks. Uh, and uh, they've got a great homebrew shop with lots of goodies there. So go check them out. And uh, until then, everybody, brew strong. Brew strong, everyone. <laughs>